All right, Happy New Year, everyone. Today we begin a new sermon series titled Identity in Christ. And this winter and spring, we're going to be moving through an extraordinary book in the New Testament, Paul's letter to the Ephesians. Paul is writing to this young church so that they would know just who they are in Jesus Christ and consequently how they are now to live their lives in view of this identity that they all share. Now, the beginning of Paul's letter, which we're going to look at here today, it kind of sounds more like a a prayer of praise than a doctrinal statement, and it's certainly true. As you read it, we'll see it is a great prayer of praise that Paul has over this fledgling church. But I hope we will also see that in this praise, there is great doctrinal truth for us this morning, a truth that if we would but understand it and embrace it, and we too would rejoice over God's work in us as well. Our passage is, a, is Ephesians chapter 1. We'll be looking at verses 1 through 10. Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus by the will of God, to the saints who are in Ephesus and are faithful in Christ Jesus, grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places, even as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and blameless before him. In love he predestined us for adoption through Jesus Christ, according to the purpose of his will, to the praise of his glorious grace, with which he has blessed us in the Beloved. In him we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of our trespasses according to the riches of his grace, which he lavished upon us in all wisdom and insight, making known to us the mystery of his will according to his purpose, which he set forth in Christ as a plan for the fullness of time to unite all things in him, things in heaven and things on earth. This is the word of God, the grass withers, the flower fades, but the word of our God will stand forever. If we want to know God, if we want to know his will, if we want to know his ways, we must know his word. Let's pray. Father in heaven, we thank you that you have given us these words through your holy and chosen apostle Paul, that we might know who we are in Christ Jesus, that we might fathom the depths of your riches towards us and every blessing in the spiritual realm that is ours in Christ. May we savor this. May it change us. May it transform us. We pray that your spirit would be upon us so that we'd be able to apply these truths deep into our souls. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. The Mount Morgan gold mine in Queensland, Australia, was for many years one of the richest gold mines in, in all of the world. And yet... For many years, though, the original landowners lived on the land over the gold mine, this mountain's barren surface, and they had no idea what was lying below them. Vast wealth was out of sight, but right below their feet, at all times, there was great riches. If only they had known, if only they could lay claim to it, if only they could take it in and mine the riches that were there. 
You know, many Christians live a similar way. We, we plot along with our spiritual lives and uh, laboring every step of the way, in many ways unaware of the vast riches that God has for us, that he has given to us. So we, we do not take ownership of them. We do not lay claim to them. Things such as grace and forgiveness and, and strength and direction and reconciliation, uh, protection and and peace, and, and hope. Things like having the power to resist temptations. Things like having our burdens carried by Christ. All of these riches and many more are ours in Christ Jesus. In our passage, we, Paul makes us aware of just who we are as Christians, of these blessings that God has given us. Look in verse 3. We see that God has blessed us with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places. It's, it's ours in Christ. And then in verse 7 and 8 we read, it's, it's not according to our achievements. It's what? It's according to the riches of His grace, which He has lavished upon us. When we hear words in the Bible like lavished and riches of grace and every blessing, we, we should sit up and take notice. <laughs> We should mine what is here. That's what we're going to do this morning. We're going to attempt to lay claim to what God is trying to teach us and tell us here this morning. These riches that we have, we're going to try to mine them this morning. So we're going to move through the text, making some points and some observations. And we're going to try to see what's really below our feet, so to speak, here in this passage. The first thing that we need to see is that we have been set apart. If you are a Christian here this morning, you have been set apart by God. We see this in the introductory greeting that Paul uh, issues to these members of the church in Ephesus. In verse 1 we read, Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus by the will of God to the saints who are in Ephesus and are faithful in Christ Jesus. Now, a number of you here I know, because I know you, you grew up Roman Catholic, and, and for you, a saint is, is someone who is really, really, really good, a really, really good Roman Catholic. In fact, saints have to have died, right? They have to be someone who's dead for a certain number of years, and uh, certain miracles have to be attributed to them. And so you're probably thinking, I could never be a saint. But here's the good news for you. If you are a Christian, you're a saint. Every Christian is a saint. Paul wasn't here writing to just the really good ones in Ephesus, right? No, he was writing to everyone in the church. We read, the text says, to the saints who are in Ephesus and are faithful in Christ Jesus. If you have faith in Christ Jesus, you are a saint. So what does it mean to be be a saint? Well, it's the Greek word hagios. It means saint, or in certain contexts it means holy. It means that you have been sanctified. All right. That might not help you very much, does it? Okay, maybe it doesn't. All right. Well, what it means is God has set you apart as his, as you are holy before him. Um, think back in, in the Old Testament when, when God commissioned uh, uh, um, 
Moses to build the tabernacle and either the temple. It was built with ordinary common things, right? And then on the inside of the, the temple, you have these curtains, although they're beautiful, and, and you have these bowls and pitchers, all these different instruments that were on tables and such, and candle stands, uh, lamp stands, and all these things. They were made with human hands out of common materials. But God had the priest do a special ceremony in which these items, by the sprinkling of blood and, and sprinkling of water, they were taken from being common to being holy, set apart for God's good purposes. At the Lord's table, sometime if you've been here, I'll, I'll pray something along the lines that, Father, we pray that you would set aside these elements from their common use to their most holy uh, use for your glory. We are being set apart. Something common is being set apart. Set apart, we need to understand, this is God's work. He is the one who does the sanctifying. He is the one who makes us saints. And if you are a Christian, you've been set apart by God for his holy purposes. Verse 2 tells us that you've been set apart for what? You've been set apart to receive grace and peace. Now, those of you who are familiar with New Testament letters, you see this often, an introduction where, where, where the writer will talk about uh, grace and peace to you. And so in a certain sense, yes, he's kind of following the traditions. This is, this is a, a, a standard format, but it's far more than that. He isn't just wishing grace and peace upon these people. This is a reality in their life. Because they are set apart by God. They've been set apart to receive God's grace and peace. And so to you, if you are a Christian, you've been set apart by God that you may experience His grace and His peace in your life. Now, I'm not sure how jacked up you get about this, grace and peace. You know, you can be a Christian for a while and, and you can kind of get numb to this whole reality. Yes, grace and peace, it's come to me. God has given me grace and peace through Jesus. And you kind of, kind of take it for granted. But this need not be the way it should be. This hopefully isn't the way it is. It really should cause us to rejoice. And that's what Paul does next. You see in verse 3, three times he uses the word blessing. He says, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places. God, the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, is worthy to be blessed. Our thankfulness should overflow to this work that he's done in us, for us, by setting us apart that we may experience his, his grace and his peace. God has blessed us with nothing short of Christ's blessing. How so? We have Christ's blessing, first we see, because we are in union with Christ. Some of you are familiar with that phrase, but I'll explain it to you. Uh, it's a great doctrine of the Christian faith that someone who is a Christian is in Christ. I don't know if you notice how many times in our, in our passage, there's ten verses, eight times we read the phrase, in him, or in Christ, or in the beloved, or, or through him. It's over and over and over. I've read that there's 27 times in this short letter itself, these words of being in Christ are there. It's, we call this truth union with Christ. We have been united with Christ. Just as in a marriage, two become one, uh, that we speak of marital union, so too if you're, you're a Christian, you are in Christ. Try to picture it this way. I don't know if you guys read books. Uh, it's kind of hard to sit down and read a whole book at one time. Uh, so I've got this one book I read. It took me like, it was a big, thick one. It, 
I wanted to take me, it took me quite a while. Uh, and I, they, thankfully, I had a bookmark, so I knew where I was. But picture your life in Christ as um, that you are the bookmark in a book. If you were to put a bookmark in a book and say you throw it in the trash, where does the, book, where does the bookmark go? It goes into the trash. Uh, say if you find a book in the, in the trash and you pull it out, uh, there's a bookmark in it. That book travel, the bookmark travels with the book. It is hidden in the book. And so what we need to see here is that if you're a Christian, you are in Christ. Your life is, is, has been bookmarked. It's been hidden into his story. Paul says elsewhere, he says, he says that, um, that if you're in, in Christ, that you, you have died in him in his death on the cross, that you are in Christ in his resurrection, uh, that we have risen in him. Paul wrote the church in, in Colossae. He said, for you have died and your life is hidden with Christ in God. If you're a Christian, then your life is in Christ. It's found in him. All aspects of it, you've been hidden in him. Now, do you picture yourself this way? Do you picture this about who you are, that you are in Christ? That his, on the cross, your, your life was hidden in him. Your sins were taken on him. That, and that, and that his, his holiness comes to you by virtue of, of being united with him. That is who you are in Christ. Unfortunately, you know, a lot of Christians view their salvation transactionally. You know, they look back to some time in the past and they remember a transaction. They, they um, trusted in Christ and then God gave them some sort of stamp and they went on their merry way or God gave you a, a get-out-of-hell-free card that you have in your back pocket and you're just walking around. It's very transactional understanding of what Christ has done for you. But, but the gospel of salvation isn't simply transactional. It's, it's organic, right? Because who you are now is not... God just doesn't stamp you as something. He, he brings you into the very life of Christ. Your life is now hidden in Christ. God doesn't uh, stamp you out, but he, he brings you in to the very life of Christ. And because of your union with Christ, because your life is with Christ, every spiritual blessing that is in Christ is yours. Every. I don't know if you picked up on that. Every spiritual blessing. We read it in verse 3 who has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places. Now, it says every. I'm going to kind of take it as, as, as the word, as Paul's word here. Take him for his word. Every. He doesn't say some or a few. He says every. All of them. My daughter Grace, she, when she was little, she doesn't do this anymore. When she was little, like three or four years old, we at the dinner table, and I got her approval to say this, uh, so it's okay. At the dinner table, we would give her a plate of food. It was, you know, and, and so, in the, but before we even ate the meal, she would, she would ask for more. And we would say, Grace, we've given you plenty. And she would stomp her feet, couldn't quite hit the floor, but she would stomp and flush. She goes, I don't want plenty. I want lots. And she did this over and over and over again. She didn't want plenty. She wanted lots. So it is with our blessings that are in Christ. They're, they're not a few they're not some. Uh, they're not even lots. It's every, every spiritual blessing in the heavenly realms. We're not only blessed with Christ's blessings, we're also blessed with his status. How so? A couple of ways. Uh, first, we receive Christ's holy status. Verse 4, we see, even as God chose us in him before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and blameless before him. 
We have Christ's status of holy and blameless. There's two parts. The blameless part is this. Something, we need to see, there, there's something that's been removed uh, and something has been supplied to us. By virtue of your union with Christ, your blame has been taken away. You are now blameless. Or as the original Greek word, uh, blemishless. You are without blemish in God's presence. I think this is important for us to hear, and not just for the people who seem to carry around a lot of blame in in their lives, um, but we are all in need of knowing that our blemishes, our blame, has been taken away by Jesus Christ. You know, life will give us many opportunities to experience shame. Our own brokenness, um, the, the sin that is within us. Each day, uh, there's great potential for us to find ourselves experiencing guilt and shame. But the glory of God's grace is that, is that in Christ, our, our guilt and our shame is, is totally erased. Not only does our union with Christ remove our blemishes, uh, it also supplies Christ's righteousness to us. We are holy and blameless. That's the same word as saints, but hagios, but here it has a connotation of a, of a moral goodness that uh, God works in us. Paul writes about this elsewhere. He says, for our sake, that's God, for our sake he made him, that's Jesus, to be sin who knew no sin, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. In him, the righteousness of God is ours. I like how my former seminary professor, uh, Brian Chappell, speaks of this. He writes, the holiness that God requires, he also supplies, not by our works, but by our union with his holy son, who shares with us his own status of holiness. This is cause for amazement. God sees me as being as holy as his own son. Not only do I have my debts wiped away, I have the riches of Christ's righteousness supplied to my account. God does not pay our debt and then leave us with a zero balance. Rather than have us destitute, he opens up the vaults of heaven to give us the benefits of the storehouse of his grace made full by Christ's obedience. I know that's a lot. I hope it sinks in. We have the storehouses of Christ's righteousness because by virtue of our union with him is ours. We are blessed with Christ's sanctified status. We are holy and blameless before him, but we're also blessed with Christ's sonship status. What does that mean? Well, we see it in verse 5 where we read, In love he predestined us for adoption as sons through Jesus Christ, according to the purpose or pleasure of his will. Sonship is a theological term that describes our being adopted by God. In the ancient world in which this was written, uh, the firstborn son was the one who, when the father died, was responsible for carrying on the family's good name and for caring for his siblings. Uh, Even more importantly, though, he got the lion's share, if not all, of the inheritance, right? What we see here is by virtue of our union with Christ, whether you're male or female, you have status as firstborn son. You have been adopted by God, treasured by Him. 
and you have full status as God's child. Unfortunately, a lot of times as Christians, we kind of live like orphans. We don't really recognize fully that, that we have been brought into God's own family. And he treasures us. He cares for us. He provides for all of our needs. We don't have to, like an orphan, try to earn approval and hope that someone will take us in. We've already received that approval, that status. And, and this really needs to inform our identity, who we see ourselves to be as Christians. Next, we need to look and see how this all comes about. Here's what we need to know and what we need to keep reminding ourselves is that salvation is not our work. It's entirely God's work on our behalf for us. There is no human cause at all. This is all divine, God's divine work. Remember that we see that our adoption is through Jesus Christ. At the end of verse 5, we read that it was according to the purpose of God's will. And in verse 6, it says that this is to the praise of His glorious grace. Uh, with which he has blessed us in the beloved. Over and over again in this short passage, Paul is making it really clear that this is God's cause. This is God's, it's God's will. It's God's plan. It's God's purpose. Did you see those words repeated throughout this passage? And in verse 4, we read that, that God chose us in Christ. It was God's choosing that places us in Christ. It has nothing to do with any good that God sees in us. How do we know this? Well, verse 4 says what? He says that that God chose us in him before the foundation of the world. Before you had any opportunity to do something good or something bad, God chose you. Now, it would be one thing if we read that God chose us after watching to see just how totally awesome we'd become, you know. And then he's like, yes, yes. No, God's not picking teams based on our abilities. In fact, when we really truly understand our own nature, um, we're not worthy of being picked, even by God. That's the beautiful thing about his grace. This is his work. He has choos- he's chosen to love us despite who we are. You know, I know some Christians think that what God does, he just looks into the future and, and sees the choice that we're going to make, that we're going to, oh, this person's, oh, this person, oh, they chose Christ. Well, that's good. All right, well, now I'm going to choose them. But that kind of undermines what we're reading here, right? If that's the case, then, then God's really responding to something that we've done, something good. And, and we know just a few verses later in chapter 2 that, that we read that it, it's, it's by grace that we've been saved, not by work. We need to understand that, that, that sometimes even we can look at our faith as a work. I did this, therefore God is obligated to choose me. It's hard to fathom, but God chose us irrespective of our decision for Christ. He is actually the one who caused us to come to faith in Christ. You may agree with me, you may disagree with me, but here's what we need to soak in today. Here is what... Um, we need to think about before God spoke the world into creation he determined to lavish his love upon you before anything was created before he even spoke the words in Genesis he chose to bring his grace into your life I don't know how that affects you I don't know if that just went in one ear out the other but if that's true then that's special that's something that, that are, uh, if we would just grasp it, if we would just lay claim to that, we would just mine that. Uh, I think that 
much of the Christian counseling in the world could be done away with if we would but understand this passage and what is being spoken to us. You know, you might disagree with me on what it means to be chosen and predestined by God, but here's, here's the whole point here. Paul is not writing this to divide the church. Why is he speaking of, of our election and our, and our being predestined? It's to, it's to unite the church. It's to encourage the church throughout all of her struggles. How does this truth assure us and encourage us? Well, tell me, if, if you really knew and believe that before time began, God chose you, irrespective of any good thing you've done or bad thing that you've done, that he chose you just purely based um, on his love towards you, would that not change how you live and, and walk here and now? Wouldn't that help you to endure in these difficult days that we endure together? Brian Chappell puts it this way. He says, The message of God's love preceding our accomplishments and outlasting our failures was meant to give us a profound sense of confidence and security in God's love so that we will not despair in situations of great difficulty, pain, and shame. And on top of this all, my friends, we see that this was done in love. You see at the end of verse 4, beginning of verse 5, In love he predestined us for adoption as sons through Jesus Christ according to the purpose of his will. Now you might never know or understand fully, I don't think I ever will, about this whole election and predestination thing. We do know one thing, it's according to the purpose of his will. It has something to do with God's will. But we also know God's motivation. It says, in love, in love he predestined us. You know, we don't read that it was, like, out of pity, right? Uh, It wasn't, like, out of obligation that he predestined us. No, it says it was out of God's love. It's It's as if God is saying, I have loved you since before the world began, so don't doubt me now. I think a lot of you need to hear that this morning. God's love for you has been for the, from the beginning of the world ever began. So let's not doubt him now. One commentator writes, Predestination is the Heavenly Father's shout of eternal love that echoes in our songs of thankful praise as our strength is renewed by the assurance of his care. And my friends, this should lead us towards praise. You see, verse 6, Paul says, To the praise of his glorious grace, which he has blessed us. In the beloved. In verse 7, Paul moves from the past to the present. He writes that in him, once again, by virtue of our union with Christ, in him we have redemption through his blood and the forgiveness of sins. Redemption means to be delivered by the payment of a price. Back in the ancient Roman times in which this was written, there were bond servants or slaves. You need to know that most of those bond servants entered into, into that their own free choice, some by war, what have you. But pretty much every servant, bond servant or slave, by the age in which they were, by, by, about the age 30, had saved up enough money to buy their way to redeem themselves out of slavery. Our problem is, though, we don't have enough to to redeem our way from the sins and transgressions. Thankfully, we have Christ's blood, his precious, priceless blood that redeems the world of its sin. 
don't know about you guys. I look at my own life, and I'm not talking about just my life before coming to Christ. In my own life, every day, every day, I'm in constant and continual need of God's grace in my life. And what we see here in this passage is is that He has lavished it upon us. Look at the verse 7 and 8. The rest of it says, According to the riches of His grace, which He has lavished upon us in all wisdom and insight. My friends, God is not stingy in His supply of grace towards you. You might feel that way at times. He's not. It's not like He's reaching in a little coin purse and pulling out a little penny of grace. I think this might cover you for today. Now we read here, it's according to the riches of His grace. I don't know if you've ever been to a water park. Uh, back in St. Louis, where I'm from, they have water parks all over the place, and not a whole lot of them out here. Everyone seems to have a pool in their own backyard. But anyway, uh, there's some, if you've been to a water park, they, and invariably they've got pipes and blowing water all over the place, a lot of fun things. But there's usually like one of these giant buckets. It's huge, right? It takes like 20, 30 minutes to fill it up, maybe 10 minutes. And it's like thousands of gallons, and it's teetering. And by the time it fills up, every, all the kids are standing under it, waiting for it to and, and it falls over in thousands of gallons of water, just drench who's ever under it, okay? That's the picture that Paul's trying to get in our minds here, that God is not stingy with his grace. It overflows towards us in Christ Jesus. His, his grace is rich beyond measure. If we could just get that in our heads. If we wouldn't doubt his goodness towards us, if we trust that he's always abounding in grace towards us. I'm thankful also that Paul put these words, this last little phrase, in all wisdom and insight. What does it mean when it says that God has lavished his, the riches of his grace upon us in all wisdom and insight? What does it mean? It means he knew what he was doing. It means he, it means he knew that what he was getting into with you and with me. God is not a clueless dope that we're swindling out of his lottery winnings. He knew what he was getting into when he chose me and when he chose you. He knew that we would be a people who, though we get God's grace, don't get God's grace, and though that we've been set apart to be holy, aren't. He knows that. He knew that. He knows, he knows that you and I fail daily in our walk with Him. If you're here today and you think a Christian is someone who's just got these moral values and they do it really fastidiously, and at the end of the day they pat themselves on the back, that's not true Christianity. Maybe you've seen that in some churches. True Christianity is found at under the bucket of God's grace. We are people who daily in need of his grace. And in the wisdom and insight of all of God's brain, he knew what he was getting into when he brought you into his family. He's not up there in heaven going, gosh, I'm not quite so sure why I chose and adopted this one. It's a lot of trouble, a lot of forgiveness here. No. Did you get that? I don't know. I can just tell you, I don't always get that. I need to be hit over the head, right? And be said, Mark, this is who you are in Christ. The riches of God's grace is flowing towards you. Start mining it. 
Start believing it. Know what you have as your resource. How about you? Once again, Brian Chappell writes this. In his wisdom, he knows more about the nature and horror of my trespasses than I do. And he is wise enough to know what will be needed to compensate for my wrong. He understands that my trespasses will require the blood of his own son to cancel my debt. And still, he redeems me. Lastly, you and I need to understand that uh, this is all part of God's plan. God knew that the world he was going to create, he knew it would fall into sin. He knew that creatures, you and me, made in his image would rebel and fall away and... and, um, seek lives apart from God and His glory. He knew that nothing short of sending His own divine Son to suffer and then to to rise again was going to be our remedy. He knew that nothing short of His own Son being the King reigning over this world was going to be able to um, bring everything back. But it should boggle our minds that He allowed this all to happen. Why? So So that His glory may somehow be seen more and more in this world. God's redemptive work shouts his glory into this creation. And we're, we're experiencing that here today. We're, we're learning about the, the glory of God. We read in, in verse the last two verses that making known the mystery of his will according to his purpose, which he set forth in Christ. Check this out. As a plan for the fullness of time to unite all things in him, things in heaven and things on earth. You know, the world is pretty much clueless to the plan of God. You tell non-Christians about God's plan to someday renew and to restore all that is broken and sorrowful, all that causes you to cry, all that causes you to, to fake who you are to people you don't know. You know, all these things that causes us to chase after identity and worth and countless other things. You tell them that Christ is going to return and to set everything straight and to restore us as human beings made in God's image. And they laugh, they chuckle, they you know, other things, you know. Um, they, they think you're just kind of naive, you know. But God has chosen to reveal this will to us. We're doing it right now. He says the, the mystery of his will has been made known to us. You know, we look back on Jesus on the cross and we see more of a suffering servant, right? Um, uh, a Messiah savior. Uh, but we should know that he was a king as well. He defeated uh, the enemy upon the cross. When Christ returns, though, we're going to see the lamb who was slain, who was also the king of kings. He's going to return and he's going to usher in an eternal age of righteousness and beauty and glory. Everything will be made right at the fullness of time. That, that, that picture brings to mind like harvest, like, like a ripeness of a, of a vegetable crop or something or a tree blossoming into its fruit. At the fullness of time, we read in verse 10 that, 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 uh, that God's going to unite all things in him. Once again, in him. Please understand this. It's not just your salvation and your life that is, is to be hidden in Christ, but the hope of the whole universe 
is in Him. God is going to restore all things in Christ, unite all things in Him. The English word unite is the Greek word. It's anakephaleao. It's kind of a hard one to pronounce. But it means to sum up or to total. All right? If you've ever done any bookkeeping or you've done a spreadsheet, you typically do the total at the bottom of the column, right? Well, here's a little bit different back in ancient Rome. One commentator puts it this way. He said, in ancient Rome, when a column of figures was added up, the total was placed at the top. He goes on to say, at the end of the age, everything will be seen as to add up to Christ. This recognition of his preeminence will ensure that the original harmony of the universe is restored. The mission of Christ extends beyond the human race and assumes cosmic dimensions. God's plan before the universe began was to, he chose to love you and to show his grace to you, but also to restore the, and unite all things in this universe in Christ. That is his plan. And if you're part of God's story, if your bookmark is in, is in, in, the, in the book of Christ's life, then this is, this is what's coming your way. This is God's promise to you. This is what your identity is to be rooted in. This is God's purpose. It's his plan. It's his will. And it will come about. Now, our goal here this morning was to mine these words of this letter to the Ephesians, to, to lay claim to them and to mine them and to press them down into our lives. And in so doing, hopefully have our identities formed more and more by Christ. So how are we to respond this morning? Perhaps you're here this morning and you're not a Christian. I encourage you to, to ponder just where you are mining for gold. All right. We're all, maybe you're not mining for material riches, but, but everybody's mining for something, something in which we're going to find our value and our worth. Well, let me put it another way. The bookmark, which, you, which is your life, what is it in? Okay? I encourage you to consider what, what your life is placed in, what you're trusting your life in, what you're trying to find your identity in. If it's anything other than Christ, it will let you down. In the end, it will fall in on you. But in the end, all things will be united in Christ. If you trust in him, your life will be hidden in him. And all these blessings, all these promises will be yours in Jesus Christ. If you're a Christian here today, may we not live like Hetty Green. Do you know who Hetty Green is? No? Well, she died in 1916 at the age of 81. She is considered to be... uh, the world's greatest miser. At the time of her death, she was worth $100 million. It doesn't sound like too much for those who live out here in the Hamptons. Houses cost that much. But we're talking about $1916. Some say she's worth even $200 million at her death. Today's dollars, that's either $1.9 billion all the way up to $3.8 billion. She was the wealthiest woman in the world. Though she had this great wealth, though, she was a miser. She ate her oatmeal cold because it cost too much to heat it up. She would not launder her undergarments because it cost too much. She only replaced them when they wore out. She would not wash the entire dress. She only washed the hem because to wash the whole dress would require too much soap. And when her son's leg was injured, she did not want to pay for a doctor, so she tried to get him admitted to a free clinic, but they knew who she was. They would not let her take advantage of their free services. In the end, his leg was amputated. 
Sounds crazy, doesn't it? She had all this great wealth, and yet she lived so miserably. I think the reason why the word miser is in miserable is probably because of that. She lived miserably. She had all this wealth at her disposal. May we not be misers of every blessing that we have in the heavenly realms, of these riches of God's grace which he's lavished on us. Grace Church, may we be a church that studies what God has given us through his son, Jesus Christ. Let us ponder that, that in Christ every spiritual blessing in heaven is ours. And that before time began, in love, God predestined you to experience um, his sonship in your life. May we know that we have been formed in Christ. We've been made new in Christ. Our life is hidden in Christ. And may the riches of God's grace not just flow into our lives, but out of our lives as well, to the praise of his glorious grace. Let's pray. Father in heaven, we thank you for these words. Uh, we thank you that it's packed with truth, truth about who you are, about your loving nature, about your purposes and your plans. I confess if my plans were, my earthly plans were fully achieved, I, it would take me places where I do not want to go. I thank you that your plan for your people, for this church, is to unite us in Christ, to give us new life in him. May we find that life in him. May we treasure it. May we share that life with others, we pray. In Jesus' name, amen.